Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Katrina Turner lives in Fair Oaks, outside of Sacramento. She's 43, and she's nonverbal and developmentally disabled. She lives in a special kind of group home for people who need a lot of support day to day. She moves to the home, and we thought everything was going to be okay, but it's not. (laughs) It's horrible. She has a history of self-injury, so the group home is required to have someone monitor her 24-7. But Katrina's family was alarmed when a staff member reported finding bruises and marks on her body. When I walked in, Katrina had a black eye. And I was like, oh my God. And my coworker said, Kylie, it's not even like the worst part. California law says people with developmental disabilities, like Katrina, should be able to live as independently as possible. To ensure that right, the state created an agency. It's called the Department of Developmental Services, or DDS. It's massive. The state spends more than $14 billion on it, almost as much as it does on the prison system. And DDS funds thousands of organizations that provide services, like day programs, behavioral therapy, and group homes. But many advocates say the system is not living up to its promise. Not even close. It is those people who are non-speaking or minimally speaking who are at the highest risks in these congregate settings um, and are often pushed to the side and ignored. I'm Susie Racho, in for Sasha Coca, and you're listening to the California Report magazine. Today, we're bringing you the results of a year and a half long investigation into allegations of abuse at one of California's most tightly regulated group homes. It's called the Illinois Home, and it's in Sacramento County. Reporter Chris Agusa spent months collecting stories from parents, testimony from employees, and documentation from state agencies. And what he uncovered suggests that a national healthcare company may have allowed and even contributed to the abuse of the very people it was supposed to protect. Um, okay, Ellie, I'm going to hand okay. you back the microphone. And, it's uh, January 2023. I'm meeting a woman named Ilea Silva at a library in Vacaville, about halfway between my home in the San Francisco Bay Area and hers in Sacramento. Uh, my name is Ilea Silva. Uh, Ilea has dark hair and a serious demeanor. She's understandably wary about talking with me because what she's about to share could jeopardize her job and her entire career. She tells me that even though she'd worked in group homes for 20 years, she still wasn't prepared for what she experienced at the Illinois home. What I found was just nothing like I had ever seen at any 
home that I have ever worked at, any program I've ever worked at. Ilea had just started a new job as an administrator at a group home in Sacramento. The job had been promising. It was with a company called Civita Health, a large national operator of group homes and care facilities throughout the country. The company already operated over 25 facilities in California and recently had gotten contracts to operate two new ones. Ilea works with people who have severe intellectual and developmental disabilities, things like autism, cerebral palsy, or Down syndrome. She'd built a reputation in her field as someone who excelled at working with the most challenging clients, first as a caregiver, then as administrator. She found she just had the right temperament. I didn't take their behaviors personally, which is a vital skill (laughs) in this field. You know, I found my niche and I said, this is where I want to be and where I want to develop my career. In early 2022, before Ilea came on board, this company, Savita Health, they had a problem. Things weren't going well with the new homes. One home in particular, it's called the Illinois Home because it sits on Illinois Avenue, had gotten in trouble with some of the local oversight agencies. Regional Center had put them on notice and let them know they needed an administrator now. Ilea seemed like the perfect fit. She says the hiring process was a blur. Ilea didn't know exactly what had gone wrong at the Illinois home, but she felt confident that she'd be up to the task. Ilea says that what followed was a harrowing eight months that left her mentally and physically burnt out and suspended from her job. She says the role required her to compromise her ethics and claims that she was targeted by management for speaking out. I requested an interview with Savita, but they declined. In a written statement, they said they wouldn't comment on specifics. Before I met Ilea in early 2023, I'd already been investigating the Illinois home for eight months. Katrina Turner's family had reached out to me. They suspected Katrina was being abused by staff and that the company was covering it up. Katrina is developmentally disabled and nonverbal. She wasn't able to accuse her abusers directly. But her family found Katrina with bruises and a black eye after a concerned staff member contacted them from a personal email account. The Illinois home where Katrina lives is a special kind of group home. The full name is Enhanced Behavioral Support Home or EBSH. They're designed to house a maximum of four people at a time, people who need constant care and supervision. Will Liner is a managing attorney at Disability Rights California. They're really developed and conceptualized as part of the state and nationwide trend to no longer just warehouse people in large segregated institutions. Those big state-run facilities with hundreds or thousands of residents many of which had a reputation for being hotbeds of abuse. In 2012, California made the decision to close down almost all of its remaining institutions over the following decade. But there's a big question at the time, where will people be served if there are no longer developmental centers? So the Department of Developmental Services made a plan to try and create a safety net. After some back and forth, it was finally approved in 2017. And central to this plan were these enhanced behavioral support homes. The growth has been pretty staggering. In just a few years, around 65 licensed EBSHs have opened, with dozens more in development. On paper, these homes look pretty good. The homes are new. The rates are good. 
The staffing is funded at a level based on the needs of the people living there. We're also concerned that in practice, some of these homes are at risk of turning into the very types of institutional placements they've been designed to prevent, just on a smaller scale. Another advocate I spoke with called them mini-institutions. And that brings us back to Ilea Silva. I think it says July 2021 is when Savita took over this home. It appeared to me that from July pretty much until I was hired, there was absolutely no oversight. Ilea was hired in February 2022. So that's eight months during which, according to Ilea, it appeared that Savita was not doing the typical things that are required to operate a home like this. Things like internal audits, check-ins, and inspections. Making sure that the staff is following the rules. By law, employees are required to go through dozens of hours of training before they're even allowed to work. But Ilea says staff were not trained on even the most basic things. They didn't know how to process anything. They didn't know how to check a med out if they had to go on an outing and how do we take it with us? Just the most basic things. Ilea says it's management's job to make sure this training happens. And it just wasn't happening. I got a facility report from one of the oversight agencies called Alta Regional Center. It shows that multiple staff members at all different levels were behind on training or missing certifications. Some didn't have the experience required to even work in an EBSH. Plus, Ilea says, staff members were stretched thin. The home was chronically understaffed. These employees worked long hours, sometimes 16 or even 24-hour shifts, according to Ilea and another employee I spoke with. Ilea says the Illinois home isn't an isolated case either. Savita was operating two other group homes in the nearby area, as well as dozens of other homes throughout California. She says she saw the same signs with outside staff. It was very systemic, like all of the facilities. They would send staff from other facilities and they were at the same deficit. They didn't have the understanding. They didn't know the regs. The clearest example of just how bad things were at the Illinois home was how staff had handled or mishandled medications. Ask anyone who works in a health field and they'll tell you. Medication management is one of the most tightly controlled, carefully documented aspects of the job. Every medication you have in your home, you need to account for. And EBSHs are no exception. We have controlled medications in the home that are abused. Um, you know, in this field, staff do steal medications, you know. Um, it is a reality, and it is why there are so many checks and balances. Ilea says standard protocol is to destroy unused, out-of-date, or damaged meds at the end of each month. But at the Illinois home... They had a, a year's worth of backed-up meds that had not been destroyed. I have photos of a giant, like, gallon uh, freezer bag that had maybe 150 pills in it. Didn't state what the medications were. Didn't state who the medications belonged to. She shared these photos with me. And she's actually underselling it here. There are also boxes and a filing cabinet full of leftover meds. Here, what was your reaction to that? Like, 
given what you know how it should be? Internal panic. Um. <laughs> Ilea says she also noticed that all of the residents seemed to be on multiple heavy-duty medications at extremely high dosages. It's not very often that you're going to see all of the meds, and so many of them prescribed at the maxed-out level. Antipsychotics, sedatives, and other powerful meds. When medications are used to sedate a resident to make them more compliant, that's actually a form of restraint. It's not openly described as this, but it's uh, medical restraint. Also known as chemical restraint. Ilea says she had serious concerns that all of the residents in the home were being chemically restrained. It was a concern she shared with Katrina's family. Katrina's father, Pat Turner, who's also her conservator, and Elaine Sheffer, her stepmother. She's walking, hunched over, and she walks like a little old lady, and her mouth is open and she's drooling. And we're like, this is not Katrina. Ilea began building a relationship with Pat and Elaine. The two are really involved in Katrina's care. They're always asking staff questions and often demand changes. It's a quality they say has not endeared them to leadership at Civita or Alta Regional Center. But Ilea says she understood where they were coming from. My focus was, what can I do? How do we get us back on track? At one point, the couple sent Ilea a request for Katrina's health history. She says she searched throughout the house but couldn't find the records. Since EBSHs are just converted single-family homes, there was also an attached garage that the staff used for storage. She figured what she was looking for must be out there. With the help of some staff, she started looking for Katrina's health records, sifting through the thousands of files. That's when I slowly started to catch things in the notes and the documents that were very alarming. Things I will honestly tell you I have never seen in any of the homes that I've ever worked in. Over Zoom, she tells me about a resident with a neurological disorder who uses a wheelchair. There were shift notes documenting uh, staff leaving him on the toilet for three to four hours on multiple occasions. I was able to confirm this and many other stories from copies of shift notes Ilea shared. Ilea says that a lot of the incidents she discovered involved Katrina. One shocking report about Katrina's behavior suggested to Ilea that she wasn't getting the water she needed and that she was forced to find it wherever she could. I mean, with they wrote about Katrina, you know, we caught her drinking out of the toilet again. Uh, we've caught her drinking from the sprinklers again and she's been vomiting because she got a bunch of mud and dirt in her mouth. How much was this happening? And remember, Katrina is supposed to be monitored 24-7. Ilea says that to her, it suggested serious neglect. She decided to send all of the reports to Pat and Elaine. You know, it's heartbreaking um, to send it to them. And they had no idea, because I'm reading it and I'm like, I am physically impacted by it. I'm about to send it to her parents. She says that report after report indicated that Katrina was being mistreated. I mean, there, there was a bunch that I found that I sent them, uh, where it was like unexplained bruises, unexplained marks. And the shift notes tried to explain those injuries away. Oh, she fell. Oh, she fell. Oh, this happened. 
I reviewed these shift notes as well. March 5th, 2022. Katrina, quote, fell in her room at 11.30 p.m. February 24th, 2022, 4.45 a.m. Quote, she fell gracefully to the floor. She gracefully fell backwards. I mean, when I read that, I'm like, are you kidding me? September 7th, 2021. Quote, fell in her room and broke one of her front teeth. Ilea says it just didn't add up. She'd never seen Katrina fall like that. I always joke that she's kind of like a cat because when I've seen her trip slip because she doesn't put her sock on all the way, she will catch herself. She will twist and turn. She found a trail of reports leading up to the black eye and concussion Katrina had suffered in February 2022. Ilea says all the evidence pointed to one person as Katrina's abuser. The shift notes I reviewed had the names of staff redacted, so I couldn't verify this. But I could verify that most of the injuries Katrina suffered during this time happened during the night shift. And if you were to go just based on the night workers' shift notes, you'd think nothing was happening. And said over and over again that uh, no bruises, but other staff in the AM and PM were noting that she had marks on her. And once the AM staff came in to take over, they kept finding these massive holes in Katrina's walls. Ilea describes seeing upwards of 20 holes and dents, with some being several feet wide. To her, it seemed obvious that they were caused by Katrina banging her head against the wall repeatedly. For me to see all the damage to her walls, it didn't sit right with me because I've never seen her do that. And to me, it just said that something was happening on these shifts, that possibly she wasn't being allowed out of the room. It's the only thing Ilea could imagine to explain all of this. Certain staff members were locking Katrina in her room against her will all night. It's a claim echoed by other staff members I've spoken with. Something was happening to her pretty brutally. She says the pattern was as plain as day. Eventually, after another employee turned whistleblower, the licensing agency got involved and the staff member in question was terminated. But by that time, Ilea says the incidents had already been allowed to continue for months. She tells me that what's especially infuriating to her is that management at Savita Health, the company that owns and operates the home, had been aware that this was happening. I have a staff statement. A staff disclosed to me that they had disclosed to Dr. That's Savita's internal investigator. Back in June, about this staff, and it was never investigated. So it's just like, it's things like this where something is thrown out there, they really don't investigate it. I reached out to that investigator who referred me back to Savita. Some of these allegations are difficult to prove since we can't hear from the one person who was affected most, Katrina. But many of the complaints against the Illinois home were substantiated by investigators at regulating agencies. Enough that the home was fined twice and sanctioned, basically put on a blacklist so they couldn't get any new residents. Savita declined my interview request, so I sent the company detailed allegations and a list of questions. They declined to comment on specifics, citing the privacy of the residents. They did send me a general statement. 
Savita promotes ethical practices at all levels of the organization, and we remain committed to our core values of integrity, respect, inclusion, and growth. They also point to staffing challenges across the industry, saying they've made significant investments to attract and retain a dedicated and compassionate workforce. And it is true that the caregiving industry is one that faces serious issues. Workers are leaving the field in droves at the same time that the need is ballooning. But as we'll see in a bit, the story isn't so simple. Alea says that outside of some specific individuals, most of the staff at the Illinois home were doing their best. Most were undertrained, overworked, and burnt out. And these are almost all low-wage positions with lots of turnover. She says it was Savita Health and its management that didn't follow regulations, failed to follow up on complaints, and fostered a culture of negligence. Again, Savita wouldn't respond to Ilea's specific allegations. I wanted to understand more about this company, Savita Health. How is it possible that this large organization with decades of experience running group homes had failed to meet the basic standards of care in this way? And was this a pattern or a one-off? Savita is actually owned by two private equity firms. Here's the rundown on private equity. These are companies that use money from investors and try to make big profits on buying and selling private companies, or companies that are not publicly traded on a stock exchange. Specifically, they try to buy a company at a low price, then make it more profitable, often by cutting costs, and ultimately sell it for much more than they paid for it. This video on Savita's website paints a much more altruistic picture. For over 50 years, we've been right here. Here with the individuals we serve. Right here to help them grow. As a vital part of their community, we meet them where they are. But the lilting piano and heartfelt voiceover actually hide a darker reality. Did you notice it said they'd been around for 50 years? The weird thing is if you check online records, Savita has only been in existence since 2021. That's the year the company did a rebrand. Savita used to be called the Mentor Network. And it turns out the Mentor Network had quite a reputation. It has had a host of allegations of abuse, neglect, mistreatment, of people under Mentor Network's care. This is Eileen O'Grady. She's a lead researcher at the Private Equity Stakeholder Project. It's a nonprofit that researches private equity's impact on communities and industries, including group homes. In 2022, she authored a report that digs into the allegations that have swirled around the company. It's been investigated by a Senate committee, it's been investigated multiple times by state regulatory agencies for abuse. Savita slash mentor. Yeah, I'm just going to have to call it that for the next couple minutes. Well, one of its major lines of business is running youth foster homes. The Senate investigation she's referring to found that over a decade, at least 86 children died at homes run by Savita slash mentor. And the committee found that the company only conducted internal investigations in a handful of those deaths. More recently, the U.S. Senate investigated Savita-slash-mentor subsidiaries in Oregon and Iowa that ran homes for disabled adults. 
it found residents were subjected to abuse, including sexual abuse, substandard care, lack of training, and extreme neglect. In one 2017 case in Oregon, a resident's bed sores became so severe after months of neglect, they had to be relocated to a hospital over 200 miles away for treatment. Through the same time period, Savita slash Mentor has been intensely profitable. Remember those two private equity firms that own the company? Well, Eileen says they've been making a lot of money. I noticed that the last two private equity firms that bought it in, in March 2019, um, Center Bridge Partners and the Vistria Group, have piled debt onto the Mentor Network and used the proceeds of that debt to pay themselves hundreds of millions of dollars. What Eileen is saying here is that these two private equity firms that own Savita have essentially siphoned money out of the company and into the hands of its investors. And they were doing it throughout the multiple scandals. It's unconscionable that they should be making profits hand over fist just to the private equity firms while the company is, you know, continuing to, to mistreat the people under its care. Again, Savita declined to comment on this. In late 2022, Ilea, the Savita administrator at the Illinois home, was sharing any and all incident reports with Katrina's parents, Pat and Elaine. And as Ilea pushed for more transparency and accountability within the company, she says it strained her relationships with her superiors. Where the tide started turning for me because I was seen as a problem because I wasn't moving in the manner of we're protecting company over all else. She says one day she was talking to another administrator who told her that one of her managers had made a comment. We're trying to get rid of Ilea. She hasn't done anything yet for us to get to get her out of here. Um, so we just have to wait until she does something. At the time of our interview in January 2023, Ilea had been suspended from her job. As we near the end of our interview, I can feel the gravity of what she's telling me. I ask her why she decided to come forward, knowing the risks to herself and her career. I don't want this to be the situation where I turn on the news one day and one of the clients has died. I just can't have that on my conscience that I didn't say something, I didn't do something. I connect with Ilea a few months later. She's in her car at a parking lot, talking to me over Zoom from her phone. She says that in the time she was out on suspension, the home had been sighted several more times. Savita actually brought her back to help, but she was overworked and burnt out, and she began having dangerously high blood pressure. I was having heart palpitations. Um, I had had a really, like, progressively uh, bad headache, but then I was also getting, like, back pain. In March, she went on medical leave. When she thinks about the situation at the home and with Savita, she says she felt stuck in a dysfunctional cycle. As for Katrina and her family, as of June 30th, 2023, that's over a year and a half after Katrina got the black eye and concussion, Savita is no longer running the Illinois home. According to the Department of Developmental Services, Savita no longer operates any EBSHs in California. 
but it still runs over 20 residential facilities and many day programs for adults with developmental disabilities. That was KQED's Chris Agusa. Special thanks this week to Lisa Morehouse for her help editing the story and to the team at KALW, where a series of stories about this investigation first aired. And that's it for the California Report magazine. Our interim senior editor is Katrina Schwartz. Our engineer is Brendan Willard. Olivia Zhao is our intern. I'm Susie Racho, in for Sasha Coca. This is the California Report magazine, your state, your stories. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hi there, I'm Randa Dirfattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.